Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome to the Hopcast. It is show number 91. Welcome indeed. And uh, we ought to introduce ourselves. I think we'll get on with that quicker than normal. Okay, let's get on with that quicker than normal. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. Together we run Hobeck Books, which is a UK independent publisher of the following four genres. Mysteries. Crime. Thrillers. And suspense. Welcome indeed to the show. Uh, We're delighted to have you on board. And this week's mega show, because it's going to be quite long. Yes. Is with uh, our guests this week. We have a, 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 a husband and wife team. R.C. Bridgestock. Well, that's the author name, but uh, we're talking about Robert and Carol Bridgestock, or Bob, as he prefers Bob, to be Bob, yeah. Known. He's definitely a Bob, isn't he? He is, very <laughs> much so. So they joined us this week. We met them last uh, the previous week in Harrogate and tried to interview, in, interview them there, but as you know, we had technical problems with this very piece of equipment we're using right now. Uh, and we, we lost the interview. So, yeah, we, so we, very kindly they said they'd do it all again. They did, they did, and uh, it's a brilliant interview. Now, Bob is a former detective superintendent of West Yorkshire Police, and amongst other things, apart from being a crime author now in his retirement, has actually been the principal, or the, between them, they were the principal policing uh, advisors to the amazing Happy Valley, which uh, was a massive hit series for the BBC uh, it's set in the Calder Valley, and which we actually drove through yesterday. Yeah, we did, yeah. We were thinking about recording it there, but to be honest, we're quite tired by that point, um, <laughs> so we didn't. Uh, but yeah, we were in the Calder Valley yesterday, as you say, and uh, it is, uh, you know, it's it's a very atmospheric place. Yes, well, we so we went through quite a few places, didn't we? But that was one of them. We also went through Osset, which is the setting of yeah, the Louise Miller. Uh, crime series written by Jonathan Peace, and uh, yeah, it was that was interesting to sort of put some landmarks to. Yeah, and yeah. I it was it was spot on as well. You know, although uh, forty years later, yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to work it out. I could see it. I could see that. You know, that was how in my mind's eye Osset looked like. So, not quite forty years. Eighties. Yeah, yeah, thirty-five years. Absolutely. Um, no, it was it was terrific to do. So. Um, I'll see Bridgestock coming up later, and it's a long interview, we have to say, and I wouldn't necessarily describe it as much of an interview in the way, because they are brilliant. At, you know, they, they talk, you know, they have so many things to tell us, uh, and actually we only got a few questions in in the and end. And I, I think if we carried on, they would have carried on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, it's, it's really it's worth fascinating. listening to. It's fascinating, because... I was very moved, actually. You know, we, we, have, you know, we, we publish lots of books from the perspective of senior coppers and all that sort of thing and and policing. Um, and, and the fact is that, you know, Bob has lived it and breathed it. And not only has he been a, a senior copper, but he's had some remarkable jobs within that within the force, uh, including being a hostage negotiator, uh, which is, you know, it's really touching some of the stuff that we talk about there. So that is to come. 
Uh, News-wise this week, we're not going to go into huge detail about stuff, but we ought to mention before we get into the news that one of our books is free this week. Yes. Way Beyond a Lie. By Harry Fisher. And it's it's free on Amazon for the next five days. So if you haven't read it, get it now, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no excuses now. Uh, yeah, so we're uh, we're promoting that for free for a brief period. Uh, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, very exciting. So that is, uh, that's uh, free, way beyond a lie, Harry Fisher. Uh, but into the news, and, um, you know, publishing news is a little thin on the ground this week, it has to be said. So we thought we'd, you know, a little bit of politics, as uh, Ben Elton would say. Well, because that affects the publishing industry, oh, as totally. it affects every single industry. Well, so. absolutely. So look, in the UK, if you're, if you're listening outside the UK, you're probably not as fully aware of what's been going on this last week. But uh, just over a week ago, we had a mini budget presented by our new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng. And as part of that, a lot of tax cuts there. Uh, the main one that, that caught the eye of the markets was the cut from 45 pence to 40 pence, the top rate of tax, which only really assists the top 1, 2% of the people in this country. Uh, but it hadn't been costed. I mean, this mini budget was presented without uh, figures from the Office of, of, of Budget Responsibility, which would normally accompany uh, a budget nowadays. And so the markets were spooked. How are you going to fund this? Why are you doing this? All this sort of thing. And um, as we speak now, as we record this this podcast, this this tax cut has now been reversed, uh, just ahead of the uh, the well during the Tory Party conference in Birmingham. But the damage that it has done to many areas of the economy has been monumental. Uh, the main thing that that happened was a run on pension funds as a result of uh, bonds. This is all very and gilts. Um, being suddenly much, much more expensive. And people, uh, pension funds are heavily invested in these things and they were being forced to sell them, but they were making them at a loss. And so suddenly pension funds across the UK were being threatened with collapse. Yeah, which is... Just because of liquidity issues. Uh, and it's totally self, well, in my opinion, totally self, uh, you know, inflicted. Yes, there are problems because of the, you know, Ukraine war and the strength of the dollar and all those other factors and general recession around the world. But this was self-inflicted, and they've now reversed it. But uh, it's taken a week for that to happen. Uh, the uh, the other effect, the key effect, was the collapse of the pound against the dollar for a period. Uh, went to its lowest rate pretty much um, since decimalization. Uh, it has one impact for us, one big impact, when obviously a lot of costs are made in dollars, even in publishing, in terms of you know unit costs. Everything that you import into the country goes up and uh, as, as a result of a, a pound being weaker. Yes. So we're seeing, in terms of the cost of publishing a paperback, for instance, it got, has already gone up considerably by a matter of 25 to 50% in some cases already this year, and that was only going to make things worse once that percolated through. The other, in reverse, we earn some of our money in dollars in terms of our audiobooks, but also the books that we sell in the United States. Obviously, that's dollars. And so suddenly, that's a, 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 a modest increase in the value in terms of what we get back in pounds. Yeah, we're not drinking champagne yet, but we might have an extra spoon of coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the, all those those factors have to be borne in mind. But then 
when we get excited about the, the American market, you still have to advertise in dollars. So the advertising is costing more. Yeah. Uh, although the return on any sales is slightly higher. Presumably. Well, hopefully, yes. But, so. it, you know, the main thing is that these shocks to the economy. I mean, the Bank of England have had to step in with £65 billion worth of support for the pension industry, effectively. I mean, who's going to pay for that? I mean, it is another aspect that is... I mean, this is before mortgage... They could put the taxes up. Well, they're not going to... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a brave politician who does that now. But at the same time, um, the bottom line is is that... I've lost my train of thought here, I'm sorry. Uh, is that the economy is contracting massively. People's pounds in their pocket don't go as far as they did. And that's before mortgage rates will go up inevitably in the next few weeks and so it's a much harder trading position for us as a publisher who some 90 percent of our books are sold in the uk and it's just a, a really tough environment as a result and, and, and exacerbated by what's happened in the last week or so yes i actually can't believe you didn't get an a for economics the way you talk about it Actually, paying I'm paying attention to it now <laughs> far more than I did when I did A level. But then again, you see, economics at A level is a lot more theory than it is this sort of practical application in the markets. There's a lot of, um, a lot of you know, because you did it at university. So well, I did A level too, but did you learn the theory so you understand the practical aspect, and you're mm. understanding the practical aspect. Yeah, it's much stronger because I can't. I, I just couldn't deal with the. If we assume, you know, people behave in such and such a way, then, you know, because all that modelling that we were learning yeah, um, and the, the theoretical stuff, you know, it was all worked on the basis of, well, frankly, mumbo-jumbo in the sense that everyone was making dozens of assumptions. That for, is for, economics, though. Even I, all this stuff, this practical stuff. Yeah, I know, I know. And, and you know, we've got uh, libertarian um, economists who are, currently leading the the intellectual well the debate within government um you know quasi Kwarteng and liz truss are both big advocates of of real neo-libertarian um sort of economics uh, as espoused by people like patrick minford who's always been an outlier in economic terms and someone i can't abide um personally but you know the the fact is that it is an economic theoretical experiment in real time yeah and they they were playing with bigger <laughs> pieces well, yeah no well uh, essentially the the welfare and well-being and the wealth of people in this country yeah i know and they... uh, and, they're, they're, and the way that they've defended their decision until they had to back down because of the tory revolt that that, that started over, which had been going on a week but really took voice this weekend they knew they couldn't get it through Parliament. Um, they were talking about voting for it in December, pushing it down the road so that you know the, the heat would go away. But they've, they've had to, you know, basically do a mega U-turn on their position. But the, the, I think that the, the the killer element of this is that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng dreamt this up just before the budget. Didn't tell anybody they were going to do it. This forty-five pence down to forty pence cut. They just did it, thinking that, you know, well, why not? We go for it. You know, you know, and they hadn't run it through cabinet. They hadn't done – no one was expecting it. And the markets got spooked as a result of it not being, you know uh, – Well, of course they do. That's – I mean 
So, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's naive at best. It's arrogant and, you know, mendacious at worst. But it does have another knock-on effect and in already difficult trading for us as Hobbit books. You know, the fact is that people don't have spare money knocking around. Um to the extent they did. Well, let's hope they get way beyond the lie then, because that's free. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, the other talking point we wanted to, to, to talk about was Richard Osman. Now we talk about him quite a lot. And we do. Had, and we gave him a mug last year at Harrogate, which he is a lovely man. He is a lovely man. <laughs> he is a lovely man. Now I think he's been hard done by uh, this week because uh, as part of his um, promotion of the Bullet That Missed, which is his third. Thursday Murder Club book, which has gone went straight to number one. It sold hundred and uh, I think it was one hundred and fifty thousand copies in its first three days, which is monumental, and all of that. He did an interview with Richard Barber in the Daily Express. Yes, it was. Yeah, and in this interview, well, the headline wasn't it? The headline was the I invented crazy crime. <laughs> um, well, or that's a sort of paraphrase. Well, clearly, Richard uh, uh, did not do that. Richard Osmond did not do that. But Richard Barber has sort of credited him with the, <laughs> with the creation of cosy crime, which has been a genre for decades and had already been, you know, a very significant part of the marketplace. But Richard Osmond's fame through TV in the UK has pushed it even further. But to say that he invented it is nonsense. And they were citing, you know, now Richard Coles, the Reverend Richard Coles has written one and we're planning to speak to Rosemary Schrager who's written one and all this sort of stuff you know basically publishers are going out and finding celebrities to write cozy crime yeah because they've seen you can make a lot of money yeah doing and, this. And, and we've said this before but you know I, I did a very I put Richard Osman in my search engine this morning and then a bunch of covers came up for different authors so closely copying oh, the, the formula yeah there's one the in creamy, particular the creamy cover with then the sort of quite it's, it's quite striking sort of uh, almost like a an art deco logo or something like that in the middle of yeah there were echoes of the art deco you know the the fonts they're using and absolutely aping it and and so actually to say he invented cozy crime when his cover um apes the sort of 1930s cozy crime to some extent yeah (laughs) doesn't make sense no no it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't and you know look there's mixed bag i mean I, i read a review the other week which was absolutely scathing i think it was in the times of his work, uh, and then the Guardian, um, he perhaps wouldn't be natural bedfellows for him, uh, was really positive. But um, it's really interesting that you know, for instance, he took a real risk when he created Pointless. He was the creative director of the program as well as starring in it. He didn't get paid for four years. He said he couldn't take a salary because he it wasn't a hit. He didn't feel it. You know, he's made a lot of money out of it now, but he didn't take any money. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was in the. That was another interview in the Irish Times. Anyway, the reason we mentioned Richard is, I mean, obviously he didn't invent cozy crime, and uh, it's most unfortunate for him in terms of his reputation within the. Writing. Yeah, I, I don't imagine that's him saying that. I think no. that's a reporter, isn't it? Who's yeah, who's ignorant, frankly, Richard Barber. You, uh, you know, you miswrote that. That's just uh, that attribution too far. But the um, the other thing is, we wanted to celebrate the fact that J.D. Kirk or Barry Hutchison, who we spoke to at London Book Fair. Uh, knocked Richard Osman off the top of the ebook charts this week, so you can only imagine what sort of sales he had for his yeah, latest book. Yeah, so, no, it's fantastic. Well but, done. But then the, the the bookseller, at least on their uh, online version, didn't have a you know. There's the headline, you know, Kirk knocks Osman off the top, and then they had a picture of Paula Hawkins or someone. 
you know, as accompanying it, because I don't think they've got a picture of, of, of Barry being an independent published, you know, uh, independently published author, self-published. So why Paula Hawkins? What's she got well, to do again, with it? Well, again, she was sort of, you know, a strong new entry, oh, okay. sort of top five or something. But, uh, you know, again, it's the bookseller being a bit snobbish, I think. You know, I think it's just a silly thing not to find a picture of, of the man himself and accompanying your headline. Yeah, well, That's just I think poor. so. <laughs> anyway, anyway I, ra- I rant on. But, I mean, anyway, congratulations to J.D. Kirk. He really is a sort of shining light for the independent community and a top bloke. He is a top bloke. He really is. I want to invite him out for dinner one day. It's, it's a fair old journey for him because he's right at the top of Scotland. <laughs> out on the, on the west coast, you know, some uh, Sutherland or somewhere I think he lives. But um, We've got quite a few people we'd like to invite from the top of Scotland, haven't we? We have. We have. <laughs> Uh, Harry Fisher, um, <laughs> the aforementioned with his free book, Way Beyond a Lie, this week only. Uh, check it out. So let's get into our interview, shall we? Yeah, we should. Okay. R.C. Bridgestock, Bob and Carol, uh, they started writing uh, quite a few years ago now. And uh, while not strictly independently published, I mean, they, they basically, Bob has so many stories from his time in the in the police. They were both members of the, the force, or rather, he was a, a, a you know, a, a, a proper sort of policeman and she was a uh, a civilian member of the yorkshire force as well uh that's where they met and um he has so many amazing stories he's he, as you'll hear from from him um he's a man of great humility and humanity i think humanity is actually the word i really want to sort of push forward because for a senior copper to have risen up through the ranks to chief superintendent uh or rather uh, detective superintendent is you know uh that's that's a high rank but i think all the way along you can sense that you know he took people with him the public you know he was a a well-known figure within yorkshire um dealing with some very high profile murder cases he had the you know had the area he he, you know you could have a conversation with him in in the supermarket no problem at all but he was doing lots of things like you know he would be called out to stop people jumping off bridges or whatever yeah and he did that with great humanity so you know, uh, the police get a bad bad rap, but I think if if more were like Bob, then you'd think, yeah, we're in safe hands. Um, so this is a, a really fantastic story about how he has, or they have, converted his career experience into amazing books, and also uh, are now consultants for TV series, including the you know superlative Happy Valley, which is one of the the best uh, crime series. Uh, of recent years yes again seeped in humanity <laughs> absolutely you know just dripping with sort of wonderful characters and uh you know how police actually do interact with every aspect of society and so um i think this is a, a really valuable interview yes it is i loved it okay let's talk to rc bridgestock well it's oh, a great yeah. honor to have a second opportunity to speak <laughs> to you Bob and Carol Bridgestock, because as uh, R.C. Bridgestock, fantastic duo of crime writers. But we spoke to you last week while we were in Harrogate, and then my machine decided to completely destroy everything. So thank you for sparing the time to speak to us again. Oh, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. And like we've just said, it's probably the hobgoblin from Yorkshire that was in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there are Staffordshire equivalents, um, <laughs> like your 12-year-old son. Uh, he's, he uh, is a bit of a hobgoblin he yeah. is, he really is anyway, thank you so much, now last week 
you know, we were all in Harrogate for Harrogate Noir, and it was fascinating listening to you about your career path um, from working, both of you, for West Yorkshire Police, and now not only crime writing, but also as consultants in TV and film, uh, and best known, I suppose, in that sphere for the runaway success at Happy Valley, which was just a brilliant series. Um, so let's go back and just take us to the point where you decided you were going to write. Well, I retired after 30 years in West Yorkshire Police. Uh, I think I've got to saturation point. Well, I knew I, knew I had. Um, people perhaps don't realise that a senior investigating officer, you don't just deal with one murder or one major incident. You might have six going at once. I think my record in a day was six murders or six incidents rooms going and being caught to six different bodies in the same 24-hour period. Uh, and it becomes manic. And fortunately, I had some great success because you're only as good as your team. I might be the face and the voice of the team, but you rely on the detectives to do as you t tell them or do as you ask, should I say. And it was time to go. And in the final, this is how sure I was, apart from you have to go after 30 years, but in the final week at Leeds Crown Court, I give evidence in three different murder trials on the same day, which is just nonsense. You know, when I think back, that was just nonsense. But courts, you know, arrangements, they cost money. You know, you can't reschedule things. And we know how busy the court system is these days, you know. And then one, of them, got on worse. one of them, there was eight... Yeah, eight there was eight defence barristers on one because there was eight dependents and, you know, so they were like piano keys standing up and sitting down. So we decided, we decided before we would leave West Yorkshire uh, and we'd only done on the Isle of Wight and we decided, right, let's retire to the Isle of Wight. So that's what we did. We, we cut the cord with West Yorkshire for light, tried to get away from it all totally which I think we did. And really, for the first, what, four or five years, we did nothing uh, except renovate the property, uh, relax. And we bred our dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we had five pups. <laughs> yeah, looked after the, you know, the pets. And, and really got on with life. You know, the, the, the thing for me was, I'd no longer, you know, three mobile phones and a pager. I woke up on a morning, I wasn't expecting calls during the night. So... I really started to relax and uh, we were doing that until a friend of ours who worked for the volunteers on the hospice came along and said, come and do a talk to the volunteers. I found out what you did. Uh, I said, you were no, busted. I, I, yeah. You know, that's all behind me. It did take them the five years. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's, no, that's all behind me. You don't, want to, you don't want to hear about it. Oh, you would do. The volunteers, I says, no, look. The hospice is a lovely place, uh, but they don't want to hear about murder and mayhem and death. They do. No, they don't. You, but you as an hostage negotiator for kidnap and extortion and suicide intervention, you must have lots of stories you could come and tell. Just come and talk to them. So eventually uh, we went. Cal and I went. I think it was supposed to be maybe an hour's talk, which lasted four hours. They didn't stop to have the tea and biscuits midway. Um, <laughs> At the end of it, uh, you know, they laughed, they cried, and, you know, they, we said, they said to us, you should write a book. And I said, I can't possibly write a book. You know, it's never something I've ever 
thought about doing, uh, really wanted to do, although Carl wanted me to do it to sort of let the, the children and grandchildren know exactly what I've been doing mm. for, for the last 30 years, missing here, there and everywhere. And, you know, I said, no, Carl, oh, you've got to do it. And fate lent its hand because the following week in the weekly newspaper on came an advert and it said, write your first novel. And Carol. Local I'll, college. I'll let you jump Yeah, in local there. college. Um, we, we went on the, uh, to the local college for six week course, write your first novel. And um, we made some great friends and we decided to do another um, extended course. Um, and to be quite honest with you, even though I did my English O level, neither of us knew what a premise or a blurb or anything like that. So, I, I, so I, it was I, all a bit alien when we first went. You know, I'm a Yorkshire lad. I passed me 11 plus and uh, then jumped ship at 15. So I jumped school yeah. at 15. Of course, in the police to get to the rank, I did. Yeah, you have to pass exams and all sorts of, of course. Uh, things. But um, to me, it was like walking into a foreign language course. I thought at first when I sat down and they started talking, I thought, we're in the wrong classroom here. Anyway, that, that's how naive we were. Anyway, or I was anyway. Anyway, when we when we actually got talking to these guys on the course, um they, we tried to all join a group so that we could actually go and discuss with authors how, you know, how their lives have gone and how they mm. felt and how they came into writing and everything. And none of the groups on the island, well, there was only a couple, wasn't there, but they wouldn't let us join because we hadn't been published. And we found out later that they were all actually self-published, but they were just like this stick in the mud, you know, people that just wouldn't allow, um, uh, they call them out like, like outlanders, you know. Um, mm. What did they call them when, they, when we actually, if you lived off the Isle came, of Wight? Came from North Island. North Island, that's North right. North Island. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, North Islanders. So. Uh, anyway so we decided well let's start our own group then so after the 12 weeks we started our own group um and that is still going now we're in a 14th year of doing a christmas short story which raises money for charity every year and we have the um ceremony in newport minster which is the minster on the island of course yeah so during this time when we're on this course um Bob had actually penned 120,000 words and he'd done it all longhand. So I know it wow. was exactly 120,000 words because I typed it up. Ah, and when, and when I counted. Typed... Let me just say I use a laptop now. <laughs> yeah, <he does> <laughs> Good to know, yeah, a little quicker. Makes life a lot easier. And, and, he, and he'd done exactly what I wanted him to do. He'd wrote his life story in a, in a case, if you like. So Deadly Focus, our first book, is very much the thoughts and the download of things that had hurt him. So it's a child murder. Um, you know, it, it was very much him unloading. And I could see that by what he'd written. But he'd actually wrote a crime file. And I used to get the crime files because I worked for the police for 17 years um, yeah. in the admin department. And so I used to get the files and and basically he'd even gone into like the form filling you know he'd gone to such depth because leave nothing out can't. yeah I think he had to All his yeah. um, and that was the structure of the book so the structure of the book is in finding the body and him catching the perpetrator because that's basically what he did and then he would present what he'd given me literally to the courts 
And I was lucky it wasn't the eight-hander because the eight-hander was actually um, a transit van full <laughs> of a file. So I was lucky it was only 120,000 words. But, but on that, I think people said early doors to me when we did start getting involved, when I got interviewed by the media, people said to me, you do know you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and probably the, the writing is cathartic. And of course, we male chauvinist it's like no it's fine it's just mm. you know part of the job and like when i started writing cal said we're going to the mortuary she says i've never been to a mortuary which you don't want you know a lot of people don't go to a mortuary unless there's a reason for it and but she says i want to know what it's like i says well i've told you she said no you've told me what it's like from a, visually and from a police officer's point of view and all you say it's part of the job I says, but I want to know what you're thinking. What are you thinking? You know, you've gone to a child murder. It's a body of a child. Our children are of a similar age. What's going through your mind apart from, you know, looking for evidence that the pathologist will find for you, what, what the cause of death was, what the weapon was perhaps, etc. But how are you feeling? And then this is what I really, what I read. So I've got a pocket full of mints. And I says, I'm eating extra strong mints because at this stage, they didn't have a viewing room. You stood. You can hear the dog in the, our dog in the background. Um, <laughs> it, it, it didn't like being left out. But the thing for, for me there is that it's just thrown me as the dog. But um, in the mortuary itself, you know, the mint, it used to be, like I said, there wasn't a viewing room. So you stood with a plastic apron on next to the pathologist, next to the examination table with your gloves your mask in your ear mm -hmm. uh, next to the body. So, and the ventilation was not as good as it is these days. So you were up close and personal with it, you know. So from that point of view, Carl's saying, well, what are you feeling? I says, well, mm. I says, I'm watching for evidence. You know, I'm looking and listening. I want to know the evidence, but I don't, I don't allow myself to get drawn in because... If you if you talk to anybody, I think that's in, involved in emergency services, once you become emotionally involved or allow yourself to to get involved, you would not be able to do what you do. So from that point of view, uh, you know what it's what Cal calls the policeman's mask, and she says, "Take the mask off and tell me how you felt. Just tell me as a person." And you know, and I go back to well, I didn't see a dead body till. Not that you know you go looking for them, but you didn't. I didn't see a body till I was twenty-one. But I grew up in the era where people were kept in the coffins in the front room and the curtains were drawn. Yes, I said, mm. I've never been. I'd never been to a mortuary till I joined the police. And she says, "Right, let's start and unpick it then." So I want you to tell me what he'd done was cut out all his senses. I'm just going to yeah. yeah, literally, he'd cut all his senses out of the taken all the feelings out of what he'd written completely. And so when I, so as I'm reading it, I'm thinking it doesn't show you the home life. It doesn't show you how it affects him. It doesn't show you how it affects anybody else. It, it was very bland, if you like, as far as a murder inquiry could be. Mm. And so I started adding little bits into the story, which and draw, trying to draw out of Bob how he was feeling, what he was thinking, what he was seeing, what he was smelling. Mm. You know, um, how he actually, like you said with the mints, how he handles certain situations. So he'd taken like a bottle of water 
Mm. You know, or one of the things that police officers did at the time was take a bunch of bananas with them to the um, to the actual incident room, which I know sounds stupid, but it gave them energy and it was slowly yes. release. Release. I did that on my wedding day. <laughs> yeah. And, and in, back in those days, because we typed, I joined in 1974, mm. um, smoking was, you know, Everyone place. was doing it. Uh, there was ashtrays on the desk. So you, you, you'd almost chain smoke. You'd almost chain smoke. And I mean, forensic sciences come on leaps and bounds. You know, back then, if you needed a, a tent to, you know, to put over the body or to secure it from sight of people passing, you'd have to ring up and a low loader would come with a tent on the back with two civilian men, you know, uh, who would erect this tent. But that could take two and a half hours, you know, three hours. By that time, you got a ring of ash around the, the body where you'd just been walking around in circles waiting. So, I mean, fortunately, I saw, saw a vast amount of change for the better in policing. Yes. Uh, through that period of time. But like Carla says, I think when I first started writing, emotion was missing you know it was vacant now or through carol we hope that we give people a feeling of emotion what we're seeing as though the reader can actually feel it almost smelly uh you know and be there which mm. puts you in that position of when you're traveling this journey with us that you are one of the detectives uh and that's how so, we write so, so we started and wrote this and yeah, you know, the first wait. book's very much like the the things that hurt him. So it was the child murders. The okay. second book was was consequences, um, consequences which is a, a cop gone bad. And again, that hurt you because this guy, your DS in this case, had been covering his back and he'd covered his. <coughs> Excuse me. And then when they go wrong, they go bad. It's like, oh my, you know, it really, really it's hurts a bad, It's you. a bad apple in any industry, isn't it? You know, so it hurts and it taints. Uh, mm. But I think I think what are you, you, you quick to learn because we went into to writing blindfolded. Uh, we got a publisher, fortunately, through Carol going online <coughs> uh, before we got an agent. Uh, and basically, the question he asked is, "I like this. Yeah, I, I want to publish this. Have you got another?" And of course, you say, "Well, uh, yeah. Well, we had, but not." ready to send and of course with technology now can you just send it me online and of course <laughs> and you think oh damn uh, right it, uh, we're just having finished. problems we're just having problems no, at the moment it was finished it just wasn't how we no it wasn't ready to go but he read it and he just said yeah that's Fine. where you know just... and, and the first series of you know dylan is nine books and, yes and somebody said to us why did you come up with the name dylan jack dylan and I said, well, do you know what? One of the things we learned from that course was write about what you know. Don't make things difficult for yourself. You know, plan, but write things what you know. Two friends of ours were having baby boys. One yeah. calling them Jack, the other was calling <laughs> them Dylan. So it seemed absolutely ideal. And I think the difference we bring to it is that being that we've been there, got the T-shirt sort of thing, with everything you read in our books, it's something we've experienced. Mm. Uh, and, and we include the home life you know the detective is not the person that turns to drinking an alcoholic locked in an hotel room or, or whatever it's just an ordinary, just an ordinary person with normal problems. that's got a family that like a lot of emergency workers do they more or less throw that switch they go to work and they deal what's in front of them 
and some of us are devastated you know it affects people differently mm. and I can think of people now that's you know an incident have never recovered from it from what they've seen and, and it, so it's difficult so writing is probably has been cathartic for us and uh, you know that's how it started and then as time's gone on we've changed to the, the latest series is the Charlie Mann series which book four vengeance is out this Next Week? Friday, next Thursday, <laughs> next Thursday. <laughs> next Thursday. <laughs> and that came about because our agent said, "Well, you've done nine books in the series; it's going well. Everybody likes it. But what about trying to do something else? What? Like what? Do you want to write a book about gardening? Oh no! <laughs> no. <And he laughs> says, a bit of a departure. Yeah, but and he says, "No, no." He says, "But what about a different character?" He says, "Do you think you could write a crime novel of a different, totally different character?" So we said, yeah, we could do. So we did it. And we knew very well it was going to look for anything in it that related to Dylan. Mm. You know, the slightest suggestion of Dylan or anything, you know, look back to me. And the, the credit, it gives us some credit. He says, do you know what? He said, I've scanned it, I've read it, and I've gone backwards and forwards. He says, there's no connection. And the stories are so different. Mm. So a credit to you. So, And that's how that started. So... You know, why do you, we didn't want intend to write. And if you'd have asked, like I said earlier, if you'd have asked me English teacher if I wrote anything, you'd have said, what? No. Way. <laughs> uh, and of course, we're what now? 14 books, 13 books, 14 books, and, and still writing. Yeah, many more to come, hopefully. Well, I think I think the thing is, it's like it's like Bob said, it, I think it's for us, um, I, I really do believe there's a book in everybody because everybody has different experiences. Every, you know, and for us, it has been very much telling the story. It started off where Bob was really telling almost a life story, and that's how Dylan's evolved. It, you know, um, a lot of the home life is our, our story, um, and Dylan is very much Bob, and Jen's very much me. So, you know, telling that story, the what's and all type of thing, in it, you know, we can bend to fiction, or you can say, well, that's fact. Whatever, I'm, you I'm know. laughing because people said, oh, well, it's easy. You just wrote what you knew, what you dealt with. And I says, it's not easy. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I could write a book. Credit write, to anybody that write can write it. a book. Yeah. But what mm. I would say to anybody wanting to write a book, do it and don't give up. Whatever you do is finish your story. A lot of people start and never finish. A lot of our friends We know people that's rewritten the first three chapters for the past 10 years. Times. You know, <laughs> and they're, they're yeah. great chapters, but they've never that's finished funny. the actual... They've never finished the story. Uh, and don't let anybody tell you that it's no good or put you off if you like your story when you've done it somebody else will like it that's for sure yeah. and mm. we've, we've had a lot of brick walls to climb over get round get under knock them down whatever uh, but we're not people that sort of give up you know once you start something uh you think well if you don't like it somebody else I, might. I think i think it's it's easier for us because there's two of us as well you know, yes. when you work together, I get um, the blame. If it gets a bad review, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and everybody, I think the other thing is, you know, every author puts heart and soul into them books. You know, when you're writing 120,000 words or whatever, you know, or 60,000 words, it's like a thesis or whatever, you'd put in your heart and soul into that, you know. So, you know, if, if people do like... Um, do like a book you know one of the things for me is please put a review on because 
you do get a lot of trolls. You do get a lot of people that yeah. just, you know. It's like somebody once said to us, if you've nothing good to say, don't then say don't it. say don't it. Say it. <laughs> but if you have something good to say, uh, and it's nice, and we've had tremendous support from the public, from the media. Uh, from the police. From the police, yeah, because they are police procedural. And, you know, two things, really. When we started out, somebody said, are you going to use your own name? Is that wise? You've dealt with lots of murderers and things. Are you not worried that somebody's going to come looking for you? Well, they could do that without seeing the name on a book. You know, why would they? You know, I've dealt with people as far as I'm concerned as I would like to be dealt with. So why should I worry? You know, people are people. You take people as you find them. And uh, so I don't worry about that. But the thing is, do you use your own name or don't you? And because I was known in the media up here because of all the murder inquiries that I'd taken charge of, why not? Because it's a start. But coming back to the police, we know from the very start, first book that anything we do, whether that's consulting on TV or writing, uh, they scrutinise everything. Are you sure mm-hmm. about? Are you sure about this boss? Or they'll send you a message, and they still call me boss. What is it? Seventeen, <laughs> almost eighteen years since I, I left yeah. the police, and they still call me boss. And they'll say, uh, "Just checked it, boss, but you got it right." So, <laughs> but when's your next one out? Or they love to be. They like to think the characters in it. Oh, they yeah. spot themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's me, boss. Isn't it? No, no, it is. Honestly, <laughs> it, it's not you. Oh, it is. No, it isn't. Yeah, they like to think they know who it well, is. Well, can I be in your next one? And it's <laughs> yeah, surprising yeah. how people many people... People love to be in books, though, don't they? They love well, to think that... In some respects, I mean, somebody said, you've immortalised my mum, you know, <laughs> uh, by putting it in a book, because now she's in the books, in, your books are in the library. And it's a lovely story, really, because we went to Waterstones in Bradford. If anybody's ever been to Bradford Waterstones... It's amazing, isn't it? What a lovely yeah, building. Yeah, it's beautiful, mm. yeah. Uh, what a lovely building. And... A lady there said, I brought my mum to see you. She's always wanted to be a detective. Always wanted to be a detective. Uh, but we've come in to get your next book because she, she likes where you write. So I said, tell you what, in the next book, we'll make her a detective. Don't tell her. Oh. That's so cute. So, and how, is she in the 80s, wasn't she? No, she, were ni- she was, was actually she 90? 90. She was 90. I think she was 96. So she wow. was a young detective. So she was in the book and she saw herself in the book and then she sadly died. But her, yeah. her daughter sent us a message saying how you, we just made, made Wonderful. it for her. You know, and, yeah. and, and that's a lovely feeling to be able to do that for something. It's just such a small thing. and it, But it did give us an idea because... We're actually patrons for a few charities. So we're patrons for Isla White Society for the Blind. Um, we're patrons for OCT, which is um, um, a climbing facility which gets people with emotional and um, disabilities, disabilities, disabilities to actually be able to get mobile. And, and to do and things with the family as a family network in a, in a safe environment. Do. So um, there's all sorts of things we uh, we, do. We, we, we're pat- uh, patrons and ambassadors for quite a few charities. And so it gives us an idea of actually um, putting that out with the charities to say, if you want to, um, if somebody wants to be in our book, we'll, we will put it up to auction. And then, you know, I think Snow Kills raised £5,000. Wow. Um, and that was before it was, was in before print. before it was in print. Gosh. Um, the last book that we And that did... was Carol's hairdresser that was in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but she wanted, she wanted to be the cops. And I can say that. She knows... You know, if she listens to this, she'll know. But 
I told her, I said, yeah, you can be the cops. The amount you charge and the way you do, where you do cows there, then you deserve to be. So it wasn't, that it wasn't her that bid. Joking, joking, of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's fun. It raises money. It helps other people. We did the DJ fund, didn't we? The, um, the DJ with Lizzie Jones. Lizzie Jones, Lizzie Jones who you'll the sing, singer. Singing at uh, the uh, beginning at football matches, cricket matches, I think matches, that raised 750 yeah. uh, just at that one auction for just one person. And at you know, that one, one you're trying to get people up, you know. Can be a detective, and one lady always reminds us every time. Says, "Well, I remember, you know, it's going back a few years now, but I bid, I bid for me, and I wanted my husband to be in the book. book. And of course, we put her husband's name in, and she says, "But I want him to be the cop. She wants to be the cop. I want him to be murdered. Yeah, you must murder him." So we did, <laughs> and and she comes back every year. She says. I've got to tell you now, it was my ex-husband. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says, I smile every time I read anything about you or pick up at that book and smile and thought, I've got my own back. <laughs> and you, so people have all sorts of reasons because when you when you talk to people, you sort of say, right, yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll send you an email. You'll send us details of yourself if we haven't met them personally, if it's a part mm. that they want you to do. And it's surprising how people, you know, you get some descriptions and so you speak to them and say, are you really like this? No, that's why I like well, that idealized self. You know, I'm only four <laughs> foot two, but I want to be six foot four, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever. So it doesn't matter to us. Uh, but it's the interaction between people. Uh, it's, you know, what do you do after the police? You know, you can only, a lot of people go play golf. A lot of people never leave because it is like a family. They go back and do all sorts of civilian roles, different tasks. Um, and we just thought, no, we had to leave it behind. But for some reason, well, we sure fate lent an hand to sort of saying, you need to write some of these stories. Mm. Um, it's surprising, you know, even, shall we say, uh, victims' family who have been in touch with us, the jobs I've dealt with, you know, uh, have said, you know, just reading about you takes me so back. And I remember that if it hadn't have been you on that day, they wouldn't have been caught. I yes. can never, I can never thank you enough. And I've said, no, you can, you have done, you know, uh, and that's my job. She says, yeah, but I know it's your job, but you go that extra mile, which from that point of view is great, and it humbles you. But I felt so humbled when we did his first book signing, and there were so many people there. I thought somebody had just turned up and, you know, set the fire alarm off, and that's why people were outside. I never give it a thought that we would turn up and you would have a queue of people wanting your books you know we never thought about it from that point of view had we no and and the aspect of the tv well that came about because we lived on the isle of Wight and we're traveling back to west yorkshire to do events mm. that we've been interviewed uh by a report from the local paper virginia mason one of the things was for us um when we actually did put the books out there we had huge support from the uh, media because Bob had always, always been amenable to them. He'd never, ever said, no, I'm not going to do it. He'd never said, you know, no, I'm not going to give you a quote. Um, and the young local reporters of the day were now editors. Mm. And they yes. were now like, you know, head of the, you know, TV channel or whatever. And so, you know, the, the amount of press we got was absolutely amazing um, yeah, and well, support from up here and like Bob said quite a few have still kept with us I mean a lot have retired now but quite a few have kept with us and one of the ladies Virginia Mason it was wasn't it 
and she came to um she rummers actually didn't she? she said could she do a piece for the halifax evening courier so we said yes and we came to talk to her and she said i've just interviewed sally wainwright she said you should speak to her so i'd actually been to school with sally uh, or she went to my school but she was two years younger than me so i'd never really know i knew of her and i knew her from other things that she'd done but i didn't really know her if you like and so anyway so we left it at that anyway we got home didn't we to the isle of Wight, and one day we just sat sat there i think watching telly at night or something and the phone rings and she said hi it's sally wainwright and immediately you think scam it's a scam you know <laughs> yeah. it's a, a false call these days you never trust anybody do you when you get these messages these days and she said um her brief from the bbc was uh julep bravo modern day that was it that's what she got so she said can you help me and she invited us up to Manchester. so yeah so we, we went up keys. to we went up to manchester to salford keys stopped in the albert and victoria hotel because it was just <laughs> around the corner from the granada studios yeah granada studios yeah. yeah um and we went and we sat and talked to her didn't we um and we came up with the name happy valley um, and and i mean this is where we come back to fate there were me carol and sally and we'd sat there and said right what about this then and we retired and last person we had been called the valley the police station they use is the our old police station the mm. um uh, window with the round windows used to be my office that you see on it uh ebden bridge the actual uh negotiating bit at the beginning of the lad on the swing and that first episode is something i dealt with the kid and the ice cream van the kidnap and the ice cream van was something we'd dealt with and it just flowed it was mm. great. It was just Sally, as though it was meant Sally, to be. Sally is so switched on, you know, read a, a script writing and, you know, we're just being able to give her the, the storyline and not just the story, but di- a lot of dialogue as well. Mm. Yeah, she'd, she'd send us like pieces and like, for instance, on one of the things that um, happened in Happy Valley series one, um, they were actually, um, they, she wanted... She wanted a shooter, didn't she? And she want, but she didn't want to get any more actors involved, you know, because obviously cost comes into it. We needed it to be where other people could see what was going to happen. So Bob, say, Bob says, well, why don't you have him on a motorcycle then? You could have CID following, couple of guys in the car. Um, so not high profile, you can use anybody really, you know, any car. So, and then the guy comes past them in on a motorbike, and basically they get stopped at the lights, shoots him in his mouth and basically in his head because he's, he's actually was. Um, so that means that he'd been talking, basically. You shoot yeah. him up, shoot him in the mouth. Great, great, great. So, I mean, that. We, so, that was forwards on email, so then she sent a message that day, didn't she? And she said to you, what would they say? So Bob said, I won't say the word <laughs> because you'd have to bleed <laughs> it out. But police officers are human. Mm. What would you say if you'd just seen somebody shot in front of you? They'd say exactly the same. Said, yeah. if, you, if you do it, up, up, going up to Ainley Top, uh, near the to the motorway, the mm. traffic's there at the roundabout. It's t- it's peak ta- traffic time. The traffic stop, but the motorbike can wiggle its way through, and that's what it does, and pulls alongside, and like Carl says, does the necessary, and then speeds off. The two CID that are following, I won't say doing surveillance, because surveillance is a total 
different, different thing. issue. You're yeah. talking about 30 cars and about 100 police officers on a true surveillance. So, yes. you know, these are just watching, but they're two, three cars back. And of course, by the time they see what's happening, the motorbike's gone and, you know, they're shouting for assistance. And this is where she says, yeah, but what would they be saying to each other? I says, get your pen. This is a bit <laughs> like this. And it went, you know, there'd be a lot of swearing going on, but actually they've suddenly got a murder that's happened yeah. in, in front, front of them. them. Mm. And the offenders have gone. That'll do. And the other thing is, when we did the bit about and it, when the policewoman got killed um, and reversed uh, the, the, the offender. reversed over Tommy, yes. Tommy, Tommy reversed over uh, not once but twice and you see the bump because we said just show the bump Don't, you can't actually show anything but people will in the seats actually jump and that you know? actually when I saw that actually and, on telly my stomach and flipped says, and I knew and it was I said, coming but you need to do it more than once and she said why, why? I said because it shows the intent that he doesn't want her to live Mm. So, so all these little things that were available, well, that we were able to contribute. Yeah, like to Happy it, Valley. Great. The name Happy Valley was then that was the name that the police officers called Calder Valley. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. So Happy Valley because it's a beautiful place. It's a Calder Valley. But, it is. Uh, down Hebden Bridge, obviously, we used to have a hippie um, culture. Yes. Um, so yeah. it was known for the drugs and the smiling you know, happy people. Smiling happy yeah, people. and a very uh, very strong LGBT community yeah. there too. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. it was. Uh, so everything was a bit tongue in cheek. With Happy Valley might not sound to fit. You know, you don't associate Happy Valley with being a, a murder, <laughs> but yet everything that actually is around, if you know what's, it just fits perfect. Uh, I mean, we were like, a bit like fish out of water because at Salford then, when they do a read through, all the actors are there. And of course, we read yes. all the actors and we nudged each other. That's so That's so What did oh, he call in? You know, that's so He was in that. That's George Costerman. What George. would he, oh yeah. So, you know, but I mean, it's, it and was Tommy Lee had long hair, didn't he? Yeah, dreadlocks. First time we met him, he had long hair in dreadlocks. And he said, he came up to Bob and he said, I've got a question for you. How, said, you how, you, how, how am I going to play this? He says, you've interviewed murderers. And he how said, would you do it? How would you do it? So go on, you said. No, no. We just said, you know, it, it depends. You, you come across all different people and different types for whatever reason. But it was a case of that normally you're quiet, but when you flip, you flip. Right. You, you know. That's but one type of person, isn't it? And, but, the other one is you tell everything, so you basically cough up and you uh, just... And it was Red Productions at Manchester that producing it, and it was a real good time. And we, we started off in um, the second series. We discussed the outline for the second, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and were involved with that. If I, just say, if I just say that anything that we're dealing with or anything that we... Uh, work on has got to be police procedurally correct mm. and part of the second series Sally wanted to do things that was more fictional it, you know it was more like a poetic license with it and we have this real struggle with that because because like Bob said whatever we do you've got the police looking at it going ah won't, that won't happen ah, mm. that won't happen and we we had this. I mean, you were TV, but we, you know, you you appreciate that it's fiction, but said, it but could, we can't. Could, there's no way. There's only we, certain things that you can. We can be very flexible, and we can yeah. make things happen and come at it from a different angle. But some things don't happen because perhaps people don't realise. Although we're authors, we get lots of emails from people. If there's a new TV series on TV, 
you know on and, a book it might a book, be a book uh, and, you know about policing people are sending us messages and saying uh, could they really do that they don't do that really <laughs> and, and, and if some of them we've seen and we said no uh you're right you've got to you know and you've think, got to say poetic license but from a consulting point of view we can't yes. be them people i think, the, I think we can't got to remember the public are more switched on these days because of all the programs that are on tv and all the information mm -hmm. that's out there are what does happen you know yes uh, there's a lot more true crime stuff exactly. out there now uh, mm. you know so you can't have your detective life on some programs one minute is at a crime scene even wearing gloves and the next minute isn't wearing gloves so there's no continuity or whatever mm. and people say well you wouldn't do that or they walk up to a man with a glove well it wouldn't do that would it and i said <laughs> no i said because i've been a negotiator like i was saying that and i've actually worn a bulletproof jacket and actually stood in front of somebody with a fire arm. yeah but behind me there's about 20 officers with firearms mm -hmm. that are shining laser dots on this person. That if he moves at all, I'm saying yeah. there won't be much left. A lot of confidence in them. But I said you wouldn't do it as a lone person. You know, mm. I've taught I've taught people um, down from great heights, from bridges over motorways and rivers and railway lines. Uh, I've never lost anybody, and I always say it's what I call the long walk because. I used to be blue lighted, you know, I used to get picked up by the like the police interceptor vehicle at great speed, taking to where this location was, where the person was. All the traffic was stopped and it's clear. And there's this silence. Once you get there, there's this silence. And you have this quiet walk across, if you imagine the parapet of a bridge. Yeah. And the poor person is sat on the parapet and uh, She's taking pencil off me because I fidget, you know. <laughs> but she just interrupted me. But you walk along the bridge to this lone person who was really at the end of the life, really. Mm. So, sometimes they've been drunk. And all you get is abuse. You know, if you shall I say, come any take any step anywhere near me, I'm going. Stop where you are. Go away, you know. And it'd be easy to stand still, you know, but as I say, your training tells you, no, you've got to keep this person talking. Uh, I pulled people back. I, I can remember with a colleague, we nearly both got pulled over by the weight of the person. I've taught people off many a time and almost been in tears myself with them because when you listen to them, you think they're for the grace of God. Yes. I, I don't judge people, you know, like homeless people. It could happen to all of us. We could all become addicted in some way, shape, or form at some time. And we went there with poetic justice, didn't and, we? Eventually, and, yeah. We... You know, you think, God, but you're so relieved. And mm. one of the things that I've, I will tell you that's always bugged me or worried me is if I ever lost anybody, if I'd failed, because I'm the last person this person's talking to. And it's it's an failed, extraordinary responsibility that you had to take there. And yeah. Bob, you, know, you strike me as a sort of person, I mean, out of everybody in, in your team of colleagues, I mean, you would be the person perhaps that someone would open up to. You've got to create that, that rapport extremely quickly, but in the most extreme circumstances. I, I think it's just amazing that you can enter a situation like that, knowing that uh, anything you do might be the trigger that finally pushes them over that point. Yeah. Um, that's so tough to to do. And I, th I think that person as well has got to be from from a family's point of view, and this is something else we try to put across. 
Bob has always said he couldn't, uh, uh, and I've always felt that that you can't have anything else going on in your life that would disrupt that feeling of being able to be so narrow-minded at that time yeah do you know what I mean your mm, concentration, focus, concentration. Yeah. one of my, one of the things that I was I felt very responsible for was making sure that his life outside the police especially in his last five years you know as you you can see that person you love getting pulled and pulled. I mean, there were only four niggers. There was only four negotiators and four SIOs on the force when Bob was doing it. Mm. You think of a place as big as West Yorkshire, how many times they were called out and how many murders and negotiating jobs they were doing. You don't get paid for negotiating, or you didn't then. So he would be going out at night to a negotiating job. Can you imagine if he'd been coming back to a row? Yeah. Or, do you know stress. what I mean? Or stress, you know, anything else. And yeah, I, 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 I was very, like very conscious. Of, an automatic pilot. You know, if, if you don't call and you get called and they ring you and say, sorry, boss, we've got you another body, you know, it's suspicious. If I was woken up in the middle of the night, Carl used to be woken up, obviously, at mm. the same time. But when I were getting ready and sort of having a shave and getting, Carol would be getting my suit out, my clothes, my tie, everything, to more or less giving me to dress me because you don't mm. know how long you're going to be out. And I always remember that one senior investigating officer turned out in his tracksuit bottoms and a T-shirt, you know, that had been painted, thinking, oh, there'd be nothing, and it wasn't. You know, mm. next minute you're on TV. And if you're seeing this person turn up and you're the, you're the family member or the loved one of this person yeah. that's been murdered, you're going to think, who the heck's this? And you it know? was always yeah, in the middle of the about, night, wasn't it? It's <laughs> always about appearance, and it's about authority as well. We talked about, you know, suicide intervention there with people that are jumping. It's about having the authority to to sort of deal with things and not, and people want to meet the person, you know, in charge, uh, in charge uh, to do it. But I mean, you know, negotiating is, is one of those. I once worked on an extortion one from a, a, a well-known supermarket that ended up with a surveillance team from uh, Leeds to uh, Bournemouth. Uh, down, and, to the new know, down to the new forest and uh, we had to drive people off the road down there or I didn't but I was I was undercover as working in the supermarket uh, so from that point of view you know I got into trouble because on one evening when I'm coming away from this I've, I've, then I was driving the XJ6 Jag pretending to be one of the uh, uh, you know Iraq in the supermarket and I stopped at fish shop on my way home to, and of course I got played out with saying, do you realise we've got something like 60 officers covering you and you're sat there eating fish and chips? And my answer was, I've got to eat. I'm just, you know, if I don't eat, I won't go any further. But, I mean, there's a lot of funny things. It, you know, there's a lot of sadness in, you know, what's the life emergency services. There's a lot of sadness, but there's a lot of funny things. And we try to add humour into the book wherever mm. possible. Some of it's dark humour. Uh but some of it isn't. And it's things that happen. You know, like people say, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Uh, you know, in one of the books, we talk about a body that sits up. You know, we'd been in a scene and suddenly this body that we'd been looking at, looking round everything, we'd been in there maybe 20 minutes, suddenly sits up in bed. And you take a very deep breath. <laughs> and you look at the CSI who was with you, because there's usually just two of you in there. You take a deep breath and then laugh. And as the body goes back, 
and they both look at each other and say, "Air in the body, trapped in the body." Yeah, and it's yeah, true. I knew about that. One. <laughs> and it's and it's true, you know. But when it it happens, yeah, it's it's that kind of thing, you know. I've known police officers become vegetarians after, like we were talking about, going to post mortems or seeing what they see. Uh, and if yeah. you've got a fear of blood, and you don't know you've got these, I won't say inhibitions, but limitations mm. till so something happens. happens. Yeah, and triggers uh, it. Yeah, and I've, but know, I think, but I think it's like going back to like when you do get that call and you're doing everything, and then you know the wife, so Jen in the stories gets mm. out, is closed and everything. And we once got a review saying, um, "I can't see any woman doing that for a for a man," and it's like, but it, but I did, it, yeah, <laughs> you did, yeah. and it did, <laughs> and you know, and yeah, I can see. It, I, I, yeah, I can see it sometimes is like remarkable that any partner would go to them lens for the other. But if you love somebody mm. and that is their role and you're being supportive, yeah, of course. It's, it's you like, know, of course it's like people do lose it. their family, you know, you're going somewhere, right? I've made you some sandwiches. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You know, it's that kind of thing. And don't forget, there's I'll put you, uh, some fruit in your bag. I used to put in fruit, a bottle of water, oh, a breakfast that. cereal. Yeah. Do you know things like that? And, and the little and notes they, saying, love you. But I mean when I go anywhere, Rebecca will put a little keepsake in my suitcase. I do. Yeah. I, I write a little note or yeah. But, yeah. I just it's, don't I give them away for a night. I find something <laughs> random. Yeah, but, I mean, I go a hedgehog. But, yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's lovely. I, I think that's lovely because But I used to say I say to people, Cal's my norm. Out of all the madness and madness and sadness that I deal with, Cal's my norm. So when yeah. I come back home, normality. Like when I, you know, I suddenly open my bag and suddenly I see this little smiley face and you know, love you and you know, stuck to a, a blinking apple or a sandwich or you know, whatever. I think, you know, it just takes you out of the moment for a minute and it just relaxes you. And you need that kind of thing. Mm. And we try to put this into the writing. You know, we really do try to when we're telling the stories to try take people on this journey and, and tell them about corpse, tell them about mortuaries, tell them about scene and educate them in some respects about what can be done and what can't be done. But I think we are lucky because we have got a structure there. You know, all our books are police procedurals. You have got a structure of the murder. You have got timelines, haven't you? You know, I mean, I'm doing, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my part of the standalone at the moment and it looks like this standalone maybe is only going to go over two weeks because of how it's been written and because how tight the inquiry is. Um, she, you know, mean, she doesn't mean two weeks to write it, no. by the way. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I mean, I was thinking you don't, no, it's all right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Can, I, can I just yeah, break in for a second and yeah. say I'm witnessing a crime? Uh, <laughs> the middle child is now stealing crisps from the oh. kitchen while we're uh, busy. What cocktail? cocktail? I didn't see what, what flavour. Yeah, but it was. Well, that depends but, on the sentence, actually, depending yeah. on what flavour it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a high tariff for prawn cocktail. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's because that's my favourite. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean. High tariff. Like. Yeah. But a credit, they're looking after themselves. I won't yeah, disturb that's yeah. true. I'm just they have to. Uh, they do. Yeah, yeah. They, they are quite self. But I mean, <laughs> people ask us, "How do you? How do you write?" You know, as a couple. Yes, I was going to ask. I mean, how's that split? Somebody I, mean, said, I mean, we've been asked, you know, sort of somebody said, Do you write sort of the odd numbers or the even numbers? <laughs> <laughs> like how you write one chapter? Well, one but, word each. Yeah. And uh, it isn't. Ooh, really. I think we would rather then. <laughs> uh, I'm usually sort of a book 
in front of Carol. You know, I might write um, 60,000 words, it might be 70,000 years of one book and Carol will be on the last one. But then we talk about them and the only thing that Carol does is change the names of some of the people in it. That annoys you. So we'll then sit down, I've gone on to the next one, we'll sit down and talk about what she's doing, going through it and doing her bit and Carol's the one that actually puts clothes on the skeleton if you like, you know, yeah. dresses, mm. you know, Carol's the writer, I'm, I'm, I'm the, you know, I'll come up with a story, but Carl's really the writer. So you're um, the technician. Yeah. Yeah. And you're yeah. the artist. I then, try, yeah. I try. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she'll say, right, in this chapter, you've, you've said this and this. And I said, did anybody call that in that book, Carl? <laughs> so which book are we talking about? There is now. No, there is. I've changed the names. I didn't like <laughs> that name. What? You see, you see, like with a crime, like with a proper inquiry, yeah. you don't get involved. So it can be, you know, Tom DeCarry, whatever. To Bob, it is just a dead body, or it's just because he can he still cannot get involved. If you drop that guard and the emotion, and mm. you, you nearly it nearly happens, and it's nearly happened a lot of the time. And you know, I know for a fact that when you come away, you'll have tears in your eyes when you're driving home, or you take, have to stop and take a deep breath to just control yourself, or you know, like you say. If you've been two hours on a bridge or three hours in freezing cold talking somebody down at the end of it, you're not going to show any emotion there. But when you come away from it, you know, it really sort of hits you when you calm down. Mm. Uh, but like Carl says, you know, when I come back to the books, well, I didn't like that name. I didn't like that I can't. Name. It's got to it, sit it, with it, me. It, it, I've it, got to mm. see it. It wasn't real. And I say, well, I'm not too bothered because as long as the main offenders' names are the same, that's fine. <laughs> you know. Don't change that because that'll throw us all together. But the the you know they're usually based on things we've seen or dealt with. All the stories, yes. you know, we're creating more fiction now. I think as we we become better at it. I mean, the nice compliment somebody gave us was, "You started off as writers, but now you're authors." Yeah, oh, wow. which, which that's is nice. Yeah, like and then that. somebody else said, "Well, you say Jack Dylan's a Yorkshireman, but you drink a lot of coffee." Yorkshireman, ah. so you know, you're losing a star because it's that kind of interaction that you get, which I, think, I smile about. I think, as well, I think because we've worked in teams, we are team players, yeah, we like being part of a team, you know, we, we, we both like being team players. Um, and I think, like Bob says, he writes the structure from finding the body to the end. Uh, but I need to create that home life for everybody involved in that. And usually I run off with another story, you know, another mm. um, level or another layer, yeah, layer of a mm. story to go with yeah. it. And yeah. he and creates havoc for me sometimes because I'm thinking, you haven't altered that bit because but, you'll realise later on, Carol, that this happens and it's a continuity without it, you know. But Bob yeah, gets... Yeah. Bob gets bored very easily. So where I'll go over things, like I might go over it a couple of times, I'll do the rewrite and then another rewrite. More, before than, we any, more speak than any couple. To Bob, before we speak together, and then he reads it through. So, but he, like I say, you 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 want to be on with next, don't you? And, and I think that's part of his, his you know, him, him. I think that's and part of his it's, job. It's what triggers it. I think it's, you know, it's like things will happen. Uh, that'll trigger a story and I think oh I better get that you know I'll write that down 
Uh, and I'll start on that. And I do do that. But I think all through life, I've been brought up to sort of respect people but not and not judge people. So I've never judged people, even murders. You know, whilst I might think that, I think some of them are totally evil, you know, it's it's not for me to judge, really. Mm. You know, um, whatever person's religion is or whatever colour they are, it matters not to me. You know, uh, if they murdered somebody, my job was to catch them. If, if they're on the parapet, I can remember one where, it was a local, you know, burglar that created crime figures like mad and everybody was saying, what are you saving for? Our crime rate had dropped so much in the area. You know, <laughs> what was that where just, the glass had just... fallen on him? The no. glass had fallen on him. He was actually breaking in somewhere and the glass had dropped. It was in the days of single plate glass and, and it they used to realise that if they broke into the local supermarket before the, because the alarm was on the window, before police response could get there, they had some like three minutes to, mm. get to scramble get and get the booze, stuff, yeah. The booze, the booze, in. booze in there. Now, the shopkeepers back. got wise because they put the booze at the back of the shop. And on this occasion, the lad just got back to the coming out of the same gap and the glass dropped and pinned him, uh, stuck in his back and pinned him straight to it. And of course, I'm the first person at the scene here. And it, I won't I nearly mentioned his name now. I won't mention his name, <laughs> but it, we're no. on first name terms. Like, God, I'm like, I'm not going to learn after this. Look, just get the ambulance here, will you? I'll admit everything I've done. <laughs> I said, are you sure you're going to admit everything you've done? But, you, you know, it's like you'll see officers, who, I, th I think for me, it's like firearms officers, you know, they face with a difficult situation and they've shot somebody, but they'll then try revive the person or save the life of that person. You know, it's, it's about trying your best you know mm -hmm. to deal with people i've always dealt with people like i said earlier with dealing with people like you to be, be dealt with you know i'm thinking at the end of the day well you know they did the best for us and you know they couldn't have asked for any more or they were polite they're respectful and like i said i've never judged anybody uh otherwise you couldn't do it you couldn't no. do the job i don't think you know i've got, I've got... I've got Sorry, go sorry. I was going to ask you an, an, another question, if I may, because um, sorry, it, it sort of, it <laughs> no, no, no. It floated across my um, my mind earlier when you were talking, um, you know, about bad cops. That you, your second book dealt with that and the the impact that had. And I read in your biography that at one stage you had to go and investigate another force uh, and potential corruption there. That must have been when you watch. I mean, obviously, Line of Duty is all about that, yeah. uh, and I'm sure you must wince when you see the sort of liberties that uh, they take with that. If you, if you, if you, you know, because the procedural side of that is out the window half the time. But that must have been one of the toughest things you ever have to deal with, surely. Yeah, it is. It's number one. You're not welcome in that force by the pe by the force, really, by the majority of the people. Uh, purely because they don't think we've done anything wrong and we don't need uh, another force coming in to tell us how we should be doing things. But they did. Uh, and it wasn't about that. And I think West Mids have been there before West Yorkshire got involved. And it's difficult. Uh, we worked in a, an unused uh, airport, really, behind locked doors, locked gates. And, you know, we had to be very careful where we went out in the town for something to eat where we're stopping there because there was this bit about trying to get some some of them into trouble or whatever you know to put slander if you like or discredit the officers that were there but 
times have changed. You know, the police and criminal evidence act have changed lots and lots of things. This particular, you know, time, they hadn't adhered to a lot of it. And when you looked at how they policed, their crime figures might have been lower, but goodness me, they were as bad as some of the people that, uh, you know, they were arresting. And it had yeah. to stop. It had to stop. You were up there uh, 18 months as And well, it is, you? you know, it's a, and when you talk to police, you know, you'd say, anybody dealt with this person and they say no. And you know very well that somebody sat in this room because you've already done your own work that this person has dealt with him. You know, he's locked him up maybe twice before, but he's saying he's never heard of the name, nothing. Yeah. And that's the lack of cooperation you get. So it makes it difficult. It makes it very, very difficult. But at the end of the day, I think we come away from it and, the, you know, everything got back to some kind of normality. But there was a lot of abuse of process there. And it's, it's not the investigator's idea. You know, you, you get independent now investigations but for me it was about you know in the early days sat across the catching the person responsible and it was the mind game sat across the table in the interview mm. you know, the murderer knew what he'd done and perhaps you and the csi knew what he'd done because you're the only two people that you know or three people that's been into that scene and seen it firsthand you know uh and like you say it, the interview skills was about breaking down barriers and getting that person to, you know, emotional, if you like, and to, to own up to what they've done. But if somebody admits a crime, that's the other thing. It doesn't mean to say they are guilty. Mm. We've yes. seen, you know, miscarriages uh, along the way. And one thing for me is, although you want to catch the killer, you want to be 200% certain it is the person. So, you yeah. know, if I've got DNA, I want fingerprints. If I've got that, I want an admission. If I've got that, I want... I want an abundance of evidence to tell mm -hmm. me and reassure me that when this person is charged, they are guilty. You know, this is the person that's done it. If there was any, in my mind, uh, if there wasn't sufficient evidence, then you release them, end of. Now, some, you know, people will not like that. They take it personal. And I could never do that. It's like, well, if the evidence isn't there, it's going nowhere in this, you know. It's hard, it's difficult. It comes down to people again, doesn't it? Yeah, individuals think, you know. Policemen are people, police officers and are people. even like the Ripper, you've got to look at the, you know, Peter Suckley. Uh, yeah. So, you know, without naming names, but they wore blinkers. You know, they suddenly wore blinkers and put all their eggs in one basket and went down one road. Well, that, that, you must have been working early on in your career around that period then. You would have been, what, a DS by that point or something? Yeah, and, and I worked on a number of the cases. I was going first at one of the first officers at two of the scenes here at uh, Calderdale and at Uddersfield. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the system, but back then, the bosses were totally different people. Mm. You know, these were people that ruled with an iron fist. If you didn't comply, you could, you know, you'd be walking the beat or you'd be out of a job. Uh, and that's the sad thing. But what you do learn, you know, you like any walk of life, you pick up on good, bad, good and bad from people of course and i think i always wanted to be the man in charge because you know i didn't like this and as time went on you were the person that were doing all the work and the other person were getting the credit anyway and uh, you know and i left the police with uh, exemplary conduct you know i've got numerous commendations from the crown court and chief constables across the, uh, in different uh, counties uh, but 
that in itself, that piece of paper means nothing to me. For me, you know, to be able to go to a scene, see the devastation, see somebody murdered, to sit with a family, and I've sat with a family and held their hands. You know, I talk about not getting emotionally involved, but you will hold hands sometimes and talking to them. But then six months later, or however long later, to be able to go back to them saying, we've got him, but this mm. is what happened. I'm going to tell you the full story. Is when it goes to court, your newspapers will pick it up, you leave it at court. To be able to give them a little bit of closure to me is ultimate satisfaction. You know, it's an adrenaline rush, you know, the investigation and the team. You know, when you've got a team of 30 officers or more and the adrenaline is there, it's keeping the lid on it and keeping it focused. Yes. You know, because you know and I know, and over the years it proves that people will be, he must have done it because look at him, he's strange. That's the person that's done it, he must have. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, you yeah. think, it might be strange, but it isn't him that's done it. Oh, it must be. No, it <laughs> isn't, you know. But people, his eyebrows meet in the middle. Yeah, he's got yes. bushy eyebrows <laughs> oh, in the middle. That's a sure sign. Yeah, yeah, sure sign. Or they dress different, and everybody knows on that street. Oh, it's weird. You know, it's weird. And I mean, that brings us right back to how we started. Why did we leave West Yorkshire? Because Carol will tell you. <laughs> Carol will tell you that if we tried to go out for a meal, you couldn't because people would say, "You know, having a meal." It's a murder on the loose. She's supposed to be in charge of it. <laughs> you know, what you're doing sat here drinking and having a meal. Or if you went to the supermarket, people would come up to us and say, Bob, have you locked husband up yet? Or it's boyfriend. <laughs> you're a bit slow. Everybody knows it's boyfriend. You know, and Carol said, just wait there and I'll, I'll go do get sure. what we need. <laughs> then come. And, you know, she used to think it would apply. She said, every time we come to a supermarket, she says, I end up with trolley going round and you're stuck talking to somebody about your yeah. last murder. <laughs> But it's that cat, everybody, you know, I think the thing, you know, we know how um, crime is the, you know, it's on everybody's menu these days. That, you know, whatever the recipe is there, people like reading and watching crime. And it and it's part of, I think that's part of human nature. We like to solve problems. Yeah. And we like to think, mm, yeah, we are, and we like we to think we can solve, or we like to think if the murder's in this room, we could tell you it is. You know, it's the old Agatha Christie. Mm. thing back it's like we think yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's like we'd like to think we'd be able to to know or we'd be able to figure it out for ourselves and it's not always that simple because no. as i say some murders i can think of one where purely on it, it, you know it broke into the house and killed the person inside and the only reason it did that is because it said i just felt i was a moth and you think what and he says well it was a dark street and there was a light and I was drawn to the one with the light on so I knew somebody was in so I broke in and killed that person because I needed to kill somebody. And you think, how bizarre. But, and yeah. you know, you think of all the background and the work that goes into investigating it and and the the motive. It's just as arbitrary as that. simple as that because what people might not know is that um, the Home Office produced a murder manual like you have manuals for so cars. cars and things like this. There is yeah. a murder manual of good practice, which is a, a you, you know you have to adhere to. In other words, this is where this is like Carl said. There's a structure. You stretch boundaries and you stretch things the best you can because technology changes. You know, if somebody can't do something in this country, can they do it? Enhance something like you know, can they do it in America or can yeah, they do like it in China or wherever? Is. You know. Um, like Carl said, time, facial yeah. mapping and things like this. Mm -hmm. 
digital photography. It was almost new. We were and identification phase. Yeah. So all this is coming. I mean, forensic is tremendous. Uh, and really, interviewing is basically, at one time it used to be an art. Now it's second nature. And it's purely, number one is, I would suggest to let the person tell you why, or you try to locate the, the body. Uh, apart from that, you look for evidence and when they're talking to you or where they say they've been or what they've done. And body language. Because, you, you know, you search that. And body language is so interesting as well. Yes. You know, because you watch out from out the screen and people say, oh, well, you can't tell because somebody twitches the nose or they rub their eye or whatever. And I said, we all have idiosyncrasies, you know, that we do. I says, but it means nothing. It's not evidence. But the interviewing now, it's in different stages of Tears. an interview or tiers as carol says and it's it's a structure but you can go back to these idiosyncrasies and you will see that when a person does lie sometimes not everybody but some repeat the action all the time so it's an indicator but it's mm. not evidence it's a bit like somebody and nodding, it could be a bit like somebody nodding and or shaking their head yeah but saying no, or yes. Saying, yes, I did everything yes, I could, I but yeah, they're everything. telling you, no, they didn't. But it's mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, little thing. observation again, like we said earlier, it's the observation about what you're picking up at. And that shows you're in control. You know, that, yeah. where, whereas years ago, you know, you'd sit across a table and people that threaten you, you know, I've had people threaten me across a courtroom. I know where your children go to school. And that hurts because, you know, uh, that really does because you just tell think about, why. Tell them about why. when they first brought in the um, when they first brought in the cameras in the interview room. I, I spent part of the, uh, my time in the police service. I spent at the detective training school at Wakefield, which was a renowned worldwide training school for detectives from all around the world, investigators. And part of my role there was to train up investigators from around the world. But also, it was part of it when the law change was to train local officers in what now you could and couldn't do. So like interview skills, police and criminal evidence came in. Interviews used to be notebook out, sit across and write down the best you can. Show it, yeah, and they signed it. Then they decided, oh, we'll just record it. So they started off by saying, oh, well, save money if we just record the interview. So one of the first interviews to do, the lad that's arrested suddenly goes, They've hit me. They've hit me. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, they've hit me again. You know, and, and suddenly it's a question of did they didn't that? You know, and they say, We haven't touched him. You know, but it's it's just ruined, you know, it's it's useless. Yeah, 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 yeah. So of course they said we'll have video camera, so video interviews. So we had to train officers up about video interviewing, not like before. And you get officers that come in, and of course. They play to the camera. You know, I can remember one coming in, into the room, sitting down opposite client, and then looking up at the camera, combing his hair, <laughs> straight into the camera. <laughs> and I'm detective so-and-so. We're here with this individual here who's a burglar. No, I'm not. He is a burglar. <laughs> Let me show you. He is. Yeah. And, and you'd interview him, and they said, well, we've got your fingerprints at the scene. Oh, right. Told you I was a burglar, didn't I? You know, then he <laughs> his head again, stand up and tie the knot on it, you know, on his tie. But I mean, 
all sorts of funny things that, you know, it's like, you know, funny things happen along the way, don't they? But yeah. it's interesting and it's interesting to see. You had an all right on the night too. All right on the night too, <laughs> but we'll check Yeah. But I mean, it's like the negotiators course, you know, people from different countries approach different things, you know, ostriches and kidnap in different ways than we would in this country. You know, we, we about, you know, try to get the victims out. In some countries, it's they're all in there. If any of the hostages lie, live, that's fine. But we're not letting the hostage takers leave. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And they would just maybe storm the building where we are, if you like. We're, it's not a criticism. It's the way they do it. They're more military-based than we are. But you learn so much. And, uh, and it's very testing about, you know, your own ability. So coming back to the writing or the advising for TV, um, we're trying to put all these things in that we've been talking about. Mm. Uh, some of them funny, some of them sad, uh, but just show or try to humanise police officers. Yeah, because these are people, you know, sons, daughters, fathers, or mums that go out and, you know, absolute credit to them. Even this day and age, with, with the different sort of technology Tasers we've got, technology. but they face some horrible people, mm. you know, who would, you know, kill them by looking at them. You know, you, I remember the first week when I went out in uniform uh, in Uddersfield Town Centre. It's 10 o'clock at night, or, well, it's 10 past 10. I'm walking down the main street and I hear all this shouting. I'm a young lad, I weigh about eight and a half stone. I know that people that know me. <laughs> Yeah, no good laughing, Carl. People that know me will think that's hard to believe because I weigh about 17 and a half now. But, um, and you hear this shouting and screaming. And you think, oh, goodness me, what's happening? You know, I've been training for all this, but this is reality now. I'm on my own. Uh, you've a radio in two pieces, a transmitter and a receiver. If you don't get there early, you learn as time goes on. If you get there early, you, both, you might get both pieces at work. Otherwise, you might just get one. And, you know, you need both hands to work. But as you take a few steps down the main street, you come across this man that's stripped to the waist, his muscles everywhere, and he's screaming and shouting. And as soon as he sees you, you come running down the main street, away from the people outside the pub who've been arguing, straight for you. And I got flattened like, like a steamroller. And I'm fighting, and I'm really fighting for my life with this fella. And it's purely about the uniform. Fortunately, assistance came, uh, and I was like, well, you know, I'm all right. I mean, over 30 years, you, you expect to get a few injuries. I've had stitches in my face. I've been hospitalised. I've been dragged by a stolen car, been punched in it. But I put that down to having a face that people just like to hit. <laughs> but, you know, you know it's what, I've just got one of them faces. Oh, we'll hit him. But, you know, as a young lad there, this fella's in his 30s, is a steeplejack by trade. And he used to go out on a Friday night. I got to know him. He used to go out on a Friday night. He'd drink 17 pints of beer, no problem at all. And he'd want to fight. And as time went on, when I went from uniform into plain clothes, I used to turn up at the pubs where we were causing his trouble. Because I knew, we, he knew he'd do it every, you know, every fortnight or whatever. And you'd go across there and you'd say, Stanley, and as soon as he saw you out of uniform, it'll be fine. Come on, get in the car, I'll take you home. No, 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 no. 
I'll just let me have one fight. No, in the cab. <laughs> <laughs> and you take him home. And uh, the, the sad thing for Stanley was when he was in drink, he was a monster. And he got killed. He got murdered later. His wife murdered him when he was asleep in bed. Mm. And, uh, you know, she rings up and said, I've got a murder for you. She'd yeah. suffered years of abuse. She, oh, yeah, she'd, I've been hospitalised and stuff. Uh, but yet they stuck together, you know. Mm. So, but sad, sad. Sad cases. But who, who am I to, you know, to, I, I don't judge it, like no. I said earlier. I, I'm not the judge and jury for these people. They're for the grace of God. You just don't know uh, what happens in your, you know, life, you know. Just no. When I first started uh, as a young lad growing up in Marsden, on the hills of Marsden, you know, I used to think, well, we must be pretty well off because we've got glass in our windows in the council house, you know. Some of them don't have glass in even. And we used to hide under the staircase two reasons one was for the rent man coming if your mum couldn't pay the rent or oh, the other one was is it thundered and lightened well that's why i hide isn't it <laughs> yeah. yeah well it used to be ever since his next door neighbor uh, chimney got struck by lightning that was right it. we're under the staircase as soon as a slightest thing under the staircase and you think i'm gonna have a phobia about this as you're going up but yeah. i mean i was involved with the police you know i, I told this story at arrogant i think I was involved with the police when I was uh, six years old because my brother took a detonator off the railway line. And it was, I'm going back to when it's steam trains, but they yeah. can burn you, they can explode. My dad had been in the Second World War, he'd been in Burma, he'd been in Dunkirk, he'd been mentioned in dispatches at uh, Dunkirk. Uh, and he was a regimental sergeant major, he'd worked with Gurkhas, so he took wow. one of the prisoners, as it were. Uh, and with three lads, like, you know, three lads and two lasses, uh, it was strict. So we went home and of course my brother took his home and my mum knew what they were so she rung my dad and then next minute I'm sat in the classroom at a school when this uh, rather large police officer shall we say came in and shouted you boy points at me and I get taken out of the school of the classroom and placed in back of the interceptor of the day which was a Morris thousand so you can see how far I'm going back. Yeah. Take Norm, giving a clip round the ear, giving a clip round the ear by my dad, and told don't touch anything that don't belong to you. <laughs> and that was my first involvement. And then at the age of 15, I said earlier that I'd left school, I went to be a butcher. I'm a qualified butcher, believe it or not. And, you know, part of that was going to the slaughterhouse. And I've looked back and is that was that getting me ready for what I saw later yeah, in life, you know, quite possibly. the blood, etc. And But I'm on my way home from the slaughterhouse one evening I've got a rolled up blue smocking under my arm and the bus stops and a policeman gets on well you wouldn't it wouldn't happen these days because there ain't enough police officers but uh, I get told to get off the bus and basically I get another clip round here for not having this uh, smock in the in the bag because it had blood on it because it had blood on it, <laughs> right. splashes on it. and some eagle like you know bus driver had seen it and thought hey up what's he been up to yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. uh and you think god this is getting you know what am i doing I'm, you know like I said, you can't anyway. beat him join him join him and exactly. that's exactly because just later on you know at the age of 20 i'm a pine pea van at Bristol marketplace and uh, a policeman tells me to move and before i've had a chance to answer it i've been put in back of a dog van but fortunately for me, you got an emergency call and I got thrown out and I clicked around there and he said, next time you talk to the Mumbai police officer, you do it. Right. But it was, you know, everybody used to have this, growing up in that era, everybody used to have this fear about police officers. The police officers knew 
the local police officer knew you, knew your family, knew your grandparents. It's a bit like the local doctor. They knew the family history and everybody on the streets. And they had this little bit about them where, you know, that little bit of fear, which doesn't do anybody any harm. No, indeed. Sorry, Rebecca's just rushed off because the Amazon delivery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was laughing earlier, didn't I? I said, we'll probably get disturbed by Amazon. Uh, no, sure no, you're right. Rebecca. <laughs> so she's out, run outside and she's now getting the, retrieving the parcel. And when she gets back, I think it'll be time for the, the random question. So yeah. all of the challenges of your careers, particularly you, Bob, with all the things you've, you've faced uh, and seen, uh, is as, as nothing to the question you're about to be asked because <laughs> you know this is just there we go we've got it is, is that, for me, that, that, that i ordered anyway let's get to the random question shall we are you gonna do the drum roll uh well I'll just... <laughs> no I'll, I'll just say rebecca's random question have you ever made a fashion faux pas and if so what was it not... Is, that, is that to me? Or can't... Oh, both of you. Hopefully not. Um, although I once, I once went and on you know for breast cancer, I once wore a pink wig, pink tie, and things, and a pink moustache for work, which got <laughs> frowned upon. Uh, but you know, I'm going to a meeting at headquarters, so I turned up with this pink wig and pink moustache, pink uh, shirt, pink uh, tie, uh, <laughs> all in pink. And I've got a picture. <laughs> it, it was a serious. It was a serious meeting. I said, "I'm doing it for breast cancer raising," and it went down like a lead balloon. They just looked at me. <laughs> yeah. so I was totally. Uh, but after that, Carl used to, like I say, Carl used to get my shirts out and tie them. He say, "Yeah, oh, that yeah. tie for the other press conference." People will think you've only got one tie, or you've only got one suit. <laughs> so very important. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, she made sure it changed because. You know, she said, when I look back, I'm just, you know, she'll look back a while ago and she was saying, at least you didn't have the same suit and tie on for every blinking murder inquiry. You know, so. I think that's like when you would come off as though as well, isn't I'm it? On. Because with, nowadays with social media, everybody knows what you're wearing. So you wear something striking, like Katie Price has got on in your picture, and everybody's seen it, haven't they? So you I have to admit, I've worn odd socks and not realised till halfway through the day. <laughs> and then yeah. looked down and thought, God, and, you know, because when you sit in front of people, uh, when you're doing your briefings, etc., you know, you think, did they, they notice I've got odd socks on or whatever? So from that <laughs> have you ever had a fashion, fashion for a pair? Yeah, oh, I, I've I, had loads. Yeah, I mean, you've had loads. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, most embarrassing was doing the school run and I, uh, I, would, I just dashed to the toilet before I went on the school run. I was wearing a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> I know what's coming. And somebody <laughs> tapped me on the shoulders. I was running down the street pushing a push chair. Dearie, your skirt's tucked in your you behind you. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Uh, Fortunately, I, I've never I, that very well. <laughs> <laughs> my, my fashion faux pas was uh, the Director General of the BBC came to visit us in Salford. Um, and so we were you know, we were a receiving line of editors. Uh, and uh, I noticed that some of the, my colleagues at Five Live were laughing and pointing at me. My flies had broken. Oh, so no. I'm there in these chinos with wide open front. I hope you had as I shook on. the hand of Lord Hall, <laughs> Tony Hall. Um, 
he didn't say anything but I, then i looked down i'm mortified i mean the, the fly had basically broken yeah. that morning <laughs> and i hadn't noticed and uh, yeah there i was gaping i mean at least the boys were in the barracks if you so to speak but um <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't the full full monty but it's good job yeah i still wince at the thought of that that was just terrible and i, mean, I was i i went, uh, went to a, a fancy dress um it was quite a posh fancy dress party but i was about eight months pregnant so i bought a pink dress and went as mr blobby oh, oh that's lovely i look, I look yeah, terrible good. though i look at photos and i think oh god i look i look enormous <laughs> but i mean that's one thing about when you, you used to do the meet you know media, media when you sat in front of a press conference and there's all there's tv cameras there yeah and i i used to dread you know going in thinking oh gosh so i always used to make sure that whatever happened i had time to find toilets find a mirror just to make sure <laughs> my shirt yeah. you know my color were all right my tie were all right my hair were all right you know because the last thing people do is they just focus in on it. And of course, some of them zoom in on it, don't they? You know, uh, and you just think to yourself, right, you don't want any distractions in here. You know, you don't want half your breakfast stuck on your chin or something like this or down in your front of your shirt, you know, or fasten your jacket up to cover it or whatever. Yeah. So you're really tight. But I mean, it's, it's strange, but it's a case you don't want to, anything to distract from the reason you're there for. Mm. Absolutely. So it, do, it does make you just, take a step backwards and uh one of the things we used i used to do because the girls never saw me i was never i was away on the morning before they got up uh they were in bed when i got home at night i never made the sports days or whatever or if i did i got called away and basically you know, we didn't have a life <laughs> yeah well we didn't you know and oh they'd see you know people that say that your dad's been on tv or he's in the paper again you know you picture your dad in paper and they used to worry you know, about me. So I said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. If I'm on TV again, I'll get mum to let you watch it and I'll just tighten the knot on my tie. And that's my signal to you to say, love you, I'm fine. Oh, oh that's so And cute. do you know what? If you look back at my things, you'll see me do that, straighten the knot on my tie. And it worked for them, like, that you know, they, they fine, shout, yeah. yeah, they shout, mum, dad's okay, he's just straightening, his, he's just done his, not on his tie, right, we're off to bed or whatever. They didn't want, to, they didn't want so to listen cute. to anything else. Do you I know said. what? He never forgot. Even well, though no. he was dealing with everything he was dealing with, he never, ever forgot to do that but when that's, he was on TV. That's, a, that's your breather. That's your step backwards, if you like, from what mm. you're going to then start talking about. So you relax. You, you don't start, yeah. blah, 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 you know, or rush into things because it's very easy to become overwhelmed, you know, with a room full of cameras and, mm-hmm. you know, photographers and microphones everywhere uh dealing with a major inquiry that's going to hit the national press or international press on occasions yes and uh, the last thing you want especially is, when you've is, been is working, not to be calm especially when you've been working all night oh, so it'd be called out sure. to a clock yeah. and then at I've, six o'clock I've he's done, on sky I've done, news i've and... done leak sky news um for one incident uh when i've been out all night and it, you know you just get the earpiece then and that is so strange stood there waiting for it to come in the camera might be on you but you know and you're waiting waiting to listen to what's coming in and the question come it's delayed slightly yes uh, and you do it it's uh, probably not that anymore i love it well, <laughs> probably isn't, but i mean then it was it was. Then, yeah. but i mean it's it's having that deep taking a deep breath and just trying to relax and just right you need to do this and remembering and one of the things for me i think one of the hardest things well worries for me apart from you know 
not saving anybody that was suicidal uh, was going to a house we're dealing with so many incidents at once going to the house and speaking to the parents and getting the, the son of the daughter's name wrong yeah yeah i always yeah. had this phobia about getting the name wrong not because I, I make mistakes like that but because of the numbers game you know, or going from, you know, you, one minute you might be in Uddersfield, the next minute you might be 10 miles down the road at another address dealing with something else, that your mind had just, before you could stop yourself, yeah. you'd mentioned the name. And I also dreaded that, thinking, well, if you don't know my son's name or my daughter's name or my dad's name, uh, you're going to catch the killer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and that was a big worry for me. So, and we talk about that in the books. I mean, we bear souls <laughs> yeah you do you do uh, and you have in the stories you know in the stories <laughs> you know there's nothing that we don't touch upon really no and i think i think that's important because it's it's life we're not yeah, we, we yeah. Not. and i think that's one of the ingredients that makes them successful Art mirroring we, life. absolutely we'll have to uh, draw things to a close at this point um what, how do I? How would I do this interview? Cut to you know, whatever. Um, uh, Fifteen fifty nine. <laughs> Rebecca Collins is leaving the room to go and get an Amazon parcel. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was lovely to meet you last week in person. Lovely to speak to you this week, and thank you so much, both Fascinating. of you, Bob and, uh, and oh, Carol, for, for nice joining us. And... Anytime, it's lovely to speak to you. Yeah, anytime you need us, just yeah. give us. A... <laughs> we will. We will. Thank you so much. And I think uh, people are going to love this interview. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Well, we've got quite a dinner party building, haven't we? Because we'd get Bob and Carol in as well, wouldn't we? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> as well as J.D. Kirk and whoever Mary else. Mary Chung as well. Oh, we yeah. Promised but... her dinner. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So, <coughs> yeah, we could have a fantastic set of dinner parties with the people we've had on this programme. Are you going to master chef them? Uh, I would do, yeah. We could do my my spinach and oh, yeah, yeah, uh, sun dried yeah. tomato garlic butter dish. That, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> we had it green beans yesterday; it was even better. Uh, yeah, so um, wonderful to speak to to Bob and Carol, and uh, we hope you got as much value out of that as as, as we did. Uh, our next guest next week is Greg Patmore. Yes, who we again met in Harrogate at the Harrogate Noir thing organised by uh, our own Malcolm Hollingdrake. Um, who is a, a brilliant narrator and I've taken enormous inspiration and gone around sort of running around this last week or so since we met him um, improving my uh, studio and taking very seriously the prospect of sort of concentrating a little bit more on narration in the future uh, I've done quite a few of the Hobet books uh, quite a few more to do um, but we're in negotiations to uh, to find rights support for that Um but I, I'm really keen to to explore. You know, we've got a studio just sat there yeah, on the so right hand side. It's an asset. Yes, and uh, we need to sweat. A rather it. large asset. It is a very large asset. There's a TARDIS sitting in our room. But uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I've been inspired by by meeting Greg. So you'll hear why uh, next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I want to see if he's at any more Japanese food since we met. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> we, we really uh, got him into that last week uh, when we were in Harrogate. Um, this week we've been uh, well. This weekend, uh, I, I drove a stupid amount of miles this weekend. I went to see my son. Went to watch Stockport County with him. A terrible match, but lovely to see James. I haven't seen him for a couple of weeks. And then we went to Leeds yesterday, partly to do some work, which was we're looking for images for a cover. Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't successful. <laughs> Not terribly successful, but you know, uh, we know now that it's very hard to get pictures of garages like motor you know, repair yards and things like that 
that don't have modern cars sitting in front of them. No. And we're trying to set something in 1989 so, or 1990, so that's not so easy. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to go back to the drawing board a little bit with that. But we went to see your son. We did, yes. Yeah, After so his first week at university. He's been there a week, and I think the visit was for me more than him. But um, yes. So we, we took him out to a sports bar in Henley, Henley, Headley? What's it called? Headingley. Headingley. <laughs> to watch the Grand Prix. Headingley. Yes. Yeah, Headingley is, well, everyone knows it from cricket because it's the home of one of the great uh, grounds of history. Uh, but Headingley is also a really interesting sort of student area, beautiful houses around there and um, full of character. Yes, and a very, very nice Oxfam bookshop. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. We both went a bit nuts in there. Uh, I bought loads of reference books. Um, I bought some art books. You did. And you bought me a cat book. I did. I did. So it was lovely to catch up with him. But this week, uh, we're busy again. So we're interviewing Greg, as we say. We've got our free deal on Harry Fisher's Way Beyond a Lie this week. Yeah. Uh, which is running till Friday. So I'm please... going to be doing some work on our Christmas offering. In fact, we're going to do the cover reveal this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. You've done a really good job with it. <laughs> Uh, and I've got lots of sort of uh, bits and bobs, principally around sort of improving, you know, knowledge on mar- current marketing strategies and, and trends, uh, which is something I've been working on for several weeks now. But, you know, this thing is not a quick process because you really want to sort of pull in what you can from around the industry and try and sort of synthesize our own version of it. And also uh, a lot of audio stuff that I've, I'm, I'm working on um, in terms of sort of my presentation of my voice to the uh, to the wider world if that doesn't sound too silly um but i've been doing all sorts of silly accents this week he to... has in the car on oh. the way to leeds yesterday well i spent my entire day yesterday speaking in a west yorkshire accent didn't i um which was a bit naff but there you go this is how you how you get better at it this is what what it's like to live with somebody who does audio <laughs> yeah i'm afraid so anyway um so you know, exciting times. Uh, as I say, I'm improving my studio at the moment and uh, uh, everything sounds amazing. Um, so lots and lots of things to do. And, uh, well, it's never never quiet, that's for sure. Uh, don't forget then to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, where you can find details of all of our books, all of our recent releases. We've got tons. Uh, most recent, of course, I'm Not There by Rob Gittins came out last week. Yeah. And uh, we are super proud of that. And uh, indeed, all our authors and all our books. So uh, please check that out. And also, audiobooks. You can get audiobooks for an absolute pittance on our website. Well, not quite, but it's certainly a significant <laughs> discount on, on what you would do if you were getting them elsewhere. And uh, I haven't really seen much impact on Spotify now selling audiobooks just not yet. yet. No, it's a bit it's early, too early days. Too early, but it, it you know has a potential to really sort of push things along because they are so aggressive with their marketing. Yeah, they are. So. Um, and I think it's a real wake-up call for, for Audible, if, if I'm honest. So that'll be interesting to see. But um, you know, it really remains for us to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to RC Bridgestock, to Bob and Carol for joining us this week. Thank you for Greg for agreeing to see, speak to us for next week. Yes, not from his yacht, I don't think, though. No, he's got a, he's got a very fine boat. Um, moored up at Morecambe, was it? No, yeah, uh, that neck of no, sorry, it was uh, just off the uh, Cumbrian coast. I was anyway. gonna say, yes, yeah, um, not Morecambe, but anyway, um, it you know, it'd be great to speak to him. But from myself, Adrian Hobart, and myself, Rebecca Collins, thank you so much for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show, show 92 next week. But between now and then, have yourselves a wonderful 
and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.